0: Welcome to Our Common Nature an exaltation of our living earth, an exploration of our niche within it, and an examination of the lasting solutions we will create by shifting our culture through care, wisdom, and working in community with the earth toward accordance with its way. In this space, we highlight place, building bridges, and finding solutions in the common ground on which we all stand. It is with gratitude and humility that we acknowledge that we are speaking, learning, and broadcasting from the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people, who are the indigenous peoples of this land. Despite tremendous hardship on being forced from here, today their community resides in Wisconsin and is known as the Stockbridge Muncie community. We pay honor and respect to their ancestors past and present as we commit to building a more inclusive and equitable space for all this episode we continue our conversation from last time on what is nature with
1: myself Seamus John and Scott is there like a formative moment that either of you can pinpoint when you started to have a very active dialogue I guess with this concept
0: I guess for me yes in some ways I mean it's hard to I grew up here kind of as you did and you know it's hard to say because it's when you grow up here it's in the countryside it's it's um Sort of just what you know, so you not't say you take it for granted, but it's you know it's familiar, and I didn't really come to like a place of recognizing it for any sort of specialness or its uniqueness or any sort of point of i guess from a perspective of, of disconnection till after five years of living in a city during my college years and you know away from home and and having space to be disillusioned from it or kind of disconnected and uh around that I mean. It's a pretty urban lifestyle at that point, and around that time, I had come on a trip back home, and um, a friend of mine suggested I pick up a book. Pointed out uh, Wendell Berry, and I picked that up. It was a, his compilation of his essays, "The Art of the Commonplace." It gets into ecology, economics, um, the the trend toward uh, industrialization, and you know its ramifications on. Moving the society away from an agrarian connection, and why working within the limitations of our living earth is the more sure way toward you know perpetuity and a more sure way toward a perpetuation of our society. So there's that, and you know. It didn't become like real for me. I mean, that gave me a lot of thoughts to to mull over, but it didn't become real for me until I I moved back and uh, needed work, and and I found myself on a farm for something to do, and it was like a it was a social sort of psychological catharsis, a spiritual kind of awakening in a way, coming coming to uh, you know working with my hands in the dirt after a life of being very you know. That being just my background, like in my my in my setting, but not my main focus. And then to realize it wasn't just a way to, you know, make a living, but it was it was the the essence of life in a way, you know, more truly. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what brought me to doing it. And then in working with it, it became like I said, cathartic, and um, it brought me close to peace. And I was able to mull on peace a little bit more. In in ways that were more sure, had more uh, complexity, because it's like when you when you're actually touching things that are uh, working always with what they're given and are also alive. You know that's um, and to to realize the aliveness and the consciousness of another
1: thing in another thing. That's it can be pretty um, inspiring. So that's interesting because there's a, a big part of the whole equation is a formative experience with some sort of opposite, which was living in a world, a rural environment, or a removal from an urban environment, a removal from your original setting, the experience that is maybe characterized negatively of the urban experience, and then your reaction to this thing as a result of coming from there. Yeah, you don't
0: know what you have till it's gone, right? I guess. So you you, you didn't. I couldn't really appreciate like the kind of the, the the lessons that were there until I didn't have them to look at, you know, or they were shown back to me, or the the proof of it, you know, was was lived in being without it. So yeah, it I was. I guess it kind of makes makes a little bit of sense. It's kind of a bit of a journey around back to it. But now that we I've been in it, that was we got twelve years ago. So, so now that I've been in it working in it for a living, it's, um, it's, it's sort of, it's rote, like, I don't really know another way, or, I mean, not, not don't know another way, but I could also always get closer to it, that's for sure, but, um, I begin to feel more alien the more I, you know, expose myself, re, again, to society, you know, or uh, again, to, like, urban mindsets, um, it feels, in a way, the more I interact with, you know, the... The zeitgeist of humanity. uh, The more it feels like I'm not really from here (laughs) or of them. You know, I get things in a way that people don't seem to realize are, of course. You know, when you when you understand how nature works.
1: So, do you find it difficult to interact generally with people who you may encounter in social situations that lack that background?
0: Yeah, I'm teaching a lot, and I end up explaining a lot. I don't know. Not to sound conceited, or big-headed, but I, you know, my work now is as a gardening coach. You know, specifically because I realize that there are a lot of people who don't get this, and 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 that the it's a steep learning curve to understand how to, you know, really grow a garden beautifully. And that learning curve hinges on understanding the living world and aligning yourself more according to the way of letting go of trusting nature. In some, you know, in, in key moments, and key parts, and different points of the of the design and the process.
1: Do you recall a time when you felt any apprehension about that trust or do you think there's any possibility of feeling it now? Oh, I mean there's every day. I mean it, it, that's that's trust is an
0: is a constant apprehension, I guess, isn't it? In some ways.
1: The trust in the sense is characterized as a ongoing. Well, meaning to say
0: that, you know, you don't know what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. There are points of You know, knowing the future or not knowing the future, but, uh, you know, anticipating a pattern and preparing for it. And so that's why it's kind of nice to be in the Northeast, because, you know, we have to know, you know, you have to prepare for the inevitable and the unexpected and the expected inevitabilities that are always going to be hard, you know? The
1: known unknowns.
0: Yeah, and the known knowns <laughs> that if you don't you know keep up with it, it'll fall apart. Um, when you said uh, have to be uh, prepared or plan ahead, was that referring to winter or yeah, winter. just? Okay. I mean, the the most obvious easy case is winter or a drought or right. You know, you know the hardships that that are part of the natural order, um, and that might be getting amplified by you know in the years to come. And that's the other thing, too, is that that trust also hinges upon your con- the confidence of your practice when it comes to gardening and when it comes to, you know, asserting your mind upon the world around you. Um, because there are lots of other minds at work that can cause all kinds of changes to that. It's just a matter of understanding which, you know, what are the ways it could come and, and maybe orchestrating that change in your favor. Or utilizing what could be, um, this is part of the, what one of the key points of perm- permaculture. Utilizing things that are uh, could be a negative and harnessing their benefits to let it happen, but so that it's uh, in a positive way toward the overall system that you're you're designing or working within. Because I mean, it's I don't know, we are in a in a funky place where we live. We've built these these linear societies, and, and you know, the truth is there is no waste and and everything finds its
1: way back within the, you know, is rendered asunder. Could you go into that a little bit more, the concept of linear society?
0: A lot of our social institutions are, you know, have what we call externalities or or points on the equation that aren't balanced out. Like this whole idea of waste, um, it's not real, you know, as far as material flows go on earth. From what I've heard I have to find the credit to it, but from what I've heard actually, the whole idea of waste was designed into our society in the 20th century in order for oil companies to sell more plastic, you know, in single-use plastics as as wrappers and, and that sort of thing, when everyone was still using like um, tin and aluminum cans and glass bottles in, in locally re- um, recyclable ways, you know, like think back to the glass milk bottles from the delivery man. Wait, so you're saying the concept of waste was being pushed as, by as an industrial um, problem that needed solving uh-huh. so that they Which could market as waste. Uh, waste. Primarily plastic waste. Plastic waste. Plastic, plastic style yeah. and styrofoam and, and all these, you know, single um, use packaging ideas. So that is to say, like they, they the mindset that goes into creating an, an extractive resource it doesn't really think that oh i have to be responsible for what else i'm taking out or what else is there because um you know it was a different way before and maybe other creatures had um a right to it um so there's a lot of like not balancing the overall equation that's happening in in the, the way in the things that our society really leans on i mean case in point directly is you know our currency which is you know ba- based on a, an impossible equation of nothing you know, zero equals one in our according to our currency which is not true <laughs> like it doesn't work that way so um, you know debt equals something in, in our in our fiat understanding of it so it's the whole thing is flawed in that way and if we find ways to um, design our institutions according to the, the overall flows of, of a, a cycling environment uh, we might be able to align with it more, more concurrently or at least not create um, negative feedback loops that our systems our institutions are causing by being um, negligent of their externalities you know that that's really interesting I
2: think that um, that it's not so much that when you bring up the topic of debt say or waste that um, that those things in of themselves are Are not necessarily bad like for example I could be in your debt because you did me a favor so that actually builds relationship it's when debt goes into an unhealthy level where it's meant to design to force you into a type of unnatural indebtedness and similarly with waste it's like how do you define it it's like for example is it anything that you throw out well You know, what if there was a paper plate that was used to feed a starving person, then you don't think of that paper plate going into the bin as waste necessarily. So it's really like, how is it being used and what's its relationship to the community and to living people? And, you know, there's more waste and less waste uh, in terms of not just the products, but again our relationship to that thing if i'm just mindlessly running the tap and not using it because i forgot to turn it off that's a waste but if i'm using that same water to to boil tea it's not a waste because it was it was useful to me and to you know my family or to my community yeah so i think it it all comes back to uh relationships and and uh, how we interact with the things in our lives.
1: John, I remember last week you mentioned that you thought there was a unique form that, uh, if I understood correctly, sort of succeeded capitalism in your mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. You referred particularly to debt. So it sounds like that's something you've spent a lot of time thinking about.
2: Well, in that case... Uh, It's mainly because our entire society runs, as Seamus pointed out, on a fiat system, which basically just means that the currency is worth what the government says it is. A dollar is worth a dollar because the government backs it, not by any tangible resources. And the way that that functions is uh, the entire GDP is based on as much debt cycling in the system as possible. There used to be a system which meant that you had to have the tangible machines and things to start a company. Now you can borrow that from a bank. And so it seems to me that uh, one of the problems that society is going to be facing is the fact that the only way that debt works is if it keeps expanding as soon as it starts shrinking. It's it's like a balloon that is very easy to pop, and if it pops, it could mean devastation, destruction. It's hard to let that air out in a safe and uh, effective way
0: that doesn't actually uh, implode. Yeah, and by devastation and destruction, you mean to the markets, and to the uh, the, f- the flow and the functioning of our economy. Yeah, and I think that the, the people who would pay the most would be...
2: Lower income yeah. people Who don't have you know, can't pay for the access as the prices rise. Um, I mean, one thing we see throughout the world recently, Zimbabwe and I think Venezuela, is that when debt gets out of control, the currency becomes worthless. And when that happens, wealthy people already own things that retains value. So if you're a landowner. And a factory owner, you own those things, but if you don't own anything, you're in a very precarious position uh, because you can't get your basic needs met.
1: We're discussing uh, a scenario characterizes devastation here, and I'm curious to see how your respective mindsets in terms of your relationship with the natural world is... Related to how you perceive the best way of overcoming those sort of devastating events.
0: Well, you no. Know, what's interesting is those those "quote unquote" devastating events, uh, the economic ones specifically, uh, almost always incur a, a recovery in the natural world. If we look at the last few you know years of of major moments in our you know of our. Globalized system screeching to a halt. The pandemic. You know what happened after everyone stopped for two months or less, two weeks. You had dolphins. You know in Venice. <laughs> you know there was there was there were sheep running around all over England and keeping the lawns mowed. Like not that they really were doing that, but you know there was a lot of natural recovery that that happened when we just stopped our economic activity, um, and that goes to show that. Our economic activity is the extractive method, you know, basing our economics around extraction of wealth rather than the growth of wealth through mutual relationship as causing good times economically are actually causing devastation ecologically, which that's a debt that will is going to actually need to come due, you know, is already coming due before too long. So now the devastation, the, the two devastations are starting to, you know, the waveform is balancing out and they're going to lock up and it's going to be 10 to million fold from, from what we've had seen. So, And that's that point that I said before, the extractive base of our economy, shifting toward a growth based on um, mutual relationship. That is the key there, I think, finding ways to align those two things. And in doing so, that means understanding the way our cyclical natural systems work and realizing that we are part of them. And uh, if we align our lives according to those systems, we'll find more ease on our personal health and also our societal health.
1: So would you say that the issues that are inherent in a linear society result in the cumulative externalization coming back to bite everyone?
0: Yeah, I don't, it's not just me saying that, it's any, all recent economic models and studies, are, and or ecologic more so, are saying that that is what's happening. Yeah.
1: No one is willingly incurring that debt, and at the same time, everyone is.
0: Yeah, and it's something that Well,
1: well there are
2: d- degrees, right? It's like, uh, there have been a lot of people who you could say naively or innocently partook in something which led to environmental destruction perhaps we all do that with our phones and our laptops and our cars like that and then there's also plenty of examples of people uh, just resorting to excessive greed and corruption and uh those are the things which i find the most troublesome because it's like yeah there's a chemical in virtually everything you own nowadays and a lot of those chemicals were put there You know, in the name of safety, such as you know, fire retardants and things like that. And there's, you know, there are studies coming out saying, actually, how healthy is this? Not just for the people, but for the environment in general. What's the long term effects of, you know, some of these plastics? It came out a while ago that it was like some crazy estimate of how much microplastics every person has in their body. Um, So we're kind of facing manifold. Uh, crises there ahead of us. Sadly, I laugh because I'm, I'm trying not to cry. I think the thing which it comes back to the question was, what do you see optimistically when you look at these challenges? And I think that there are uh, one of the reasons that if I can speak for both of us, we got into permaculture was the fact that it was an attempt to do just that, to operate outside of the system and create natural inputs rather than synthetic or petroleum-based fertilizers, for example. Is it possible to run a farm that way? And it is, but it, it has to be done by degrees. I think recently in the news was uh, Sri Lanka, uh, maybe you guys heard about this, they they banned petroleum-based fertilizers. And it's one of the th- one of the strange things is that sounds like a great thing for the environment but actually it ends up being a complete catastrophe because then if people start rioting and creating havoc that's going to be vastly more destructive to the environment
0: mm-hmm. because they literally couldn't feed themselves. Yeah. And this, so, let's let's say let's let's just to speak specifically to about the, the, this, the case of Sri Lanka where it's like they tried to implement an organic system on too short a timeline right. uh, for efficacy in transition. So, so that's part of it is
2: uh, there are solutions, but if we want them to work, we have to start getting serious about implementing them now and not when a crisis hits because, uh, if If major uh, environmental problems and economic catastrophes do come, uh, it's you can't just turn around and whip up a farm which has only natural inputs, which is you know self-sufficient yeah.
0: however, on a, in an inverse case, if you do have time over decades to you know uh, mindfully design and carefully tend to your situation and, and allow for partnership with nature in doing so, you can sustain and uh, pretty effortlessly systems that can nourish many people for long periods of time. Like a, a different case would be like Cuba, for instance, who had been under blockade from U.S. embargo, has been still for the last you know, 70 years, and they were exporting pharmaceuticals during the pandemic because they had systems that were, you know, because of their, the blockade, were working with their in their constraints. You know, they had or you know, the, in their case, they had already shifted to organic farming out of necessity because they had no access for, in the fifties there from there on. Yeah. So they have a burgeoning uh, organic farming uh, system that's fully feeding their their entire population, you know, enough so that they can support other industries that are, are becoming export industries. You know, were they allowed to we, we, you know, minus the blockade, so it, the solutions are there, and they can happen um, it's just not it's it's having reasonable expectations sometimes right. and and, and, yeah. and getting there through um, you know f- full understanding of of the way things working and, and getting over that learning curve I think that uh, in terms
2: of expectations, still if you could manage to put even little bits here and there. And it's, you know, for, for someone perhaps who's living in an apartment in a city, it's like, what can they do? There are a lot of things that everyone can do. And one of the things I, I, that comes to mind is not just, you know, making use of window space and rooftops, um, but having relationships with farmers. You know, you can, even if you're in a city, you can go to a farmer's market and literally meet the farmers and, and create a relationship. And, you know, I, have got to imagine that if times did get tough,
0: it's going to be relationships that can see us through. For sure. Yeah. No, that's, I think that's the new understanding amongst, you know, uh, prepper scientists or people who are thinking about trying to work through their climate anxiety are, um, you know, the, the real solutions aren't in having a a bunker or you know having a militia and or, the real solutions are in you um, know not going off grid not not isolating yourself but in 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 making connections in knowing your immediate neighbors in understanding who has what knows how to do what can teach can um, trade and be in recognition of each other's mutual humanity. And that re- humanity requires the natural world. It, it, and ideally, were healthfully functioning, would not consider it separate.
1: We originally were going off sort of prompt of personal relationships with the natural world and how it changes over time. But, you know, we're arriving in this discussion of the relationship of the whole as opposed to the individual, right? So I'm curious, are there any sort of currently existing systems of organization that pique your guys' interest as far as community resilience or in terms of like organization with a nod towards a healthier existence with a natural world that you foresee having a role in seeing humanity through the climate crisis? I mean, that could be a more political thing or it could be I suppose they are all political, but a more sort of practical thing. But um, I'm curious then, you know, whether any... I do feel some
0: encouragement around, um, not to immediately you know, pat the back of the government, but to, I do feel some encouragement around you know, Congress's eye or mind, or at least you know, um, lip service to ideas like um, regenerative agriculture and that that and at least on our state level is becoming more understood as an as an educational imperative at least if not also like a practical one in in you know the the conduct of our agriculture you know although i think that there's still a, a lot of a, a much further way to go with that and uh, i think there's a lot of opportunity for corruption and collusion to greenwash that whole process you know be so um you know, beholden to anything, you know, trying to keep them accountable to their externalities. I mean, there was a big grant that just went out via the USDA for, you know, regenerative ag projects. And, you know, there were a lot of small uh, businesses and collaborations that, you know, got some some uh, funding here and there. But most of the beneficiaries were like Coca-Cola and PepsiCo and in Nestle. I think that the 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 real hope is in um i don't want to say more subversive but more direct um, on the ground place based reconnection. I think th- there's a lot of interesting uh movements going on that you know were they to band together or to, to be interconnected in a more let's say interdisciplinary way that, that there could be a you know pretty heavy shift pretty pretty quickly specifically like community gardening um, what else home home backyard food production of any kind really where people can can ban their efforts and then also not not just food related but anything that kind of gets people into being more productive rather than consumptive so you know um, lending libraries and and um, skill shares and even good old like traditional revival you know any sort of sense where community gets together outside is not you know it, it's something that should stay alive if we're gonna like stay in right relationship with the earth I agree
2: with that in general I think that uh I'm pretty skeptical about Uh, government initiatives because I think that the thing that we're talking about has to come from a grassroots movement. It has to come from, uh, people getting outside off their screens, uh, into nature and getting to connect with people in their community who want the same kind of resiliency. And, uh, Yeah, it'd be nice to see more regenerative agriculture. I feel like some of the worst destruction is oftentimes spawned by some of these very programs where, like Seamus, you're pointing out, it ends up being a Nestle who gets, you know, a contract from the government. And it's like, oh, you know, what have they done? It's like, look in, just look into like a corporate watch and you'll find out that Nestle has an absolutely horrific track record of profiteering off of privatizing water in places where people can't get access to fresh, clean water. Basically, this is a revolving door between the top uh, companies who are profiteering off of government handouts. So we really can't wait for that to happen and meaning for them to step in and do something. I think if if it was gonna be something meaningful, it would, it would start with uh, anti-corruption laws uh, in getting uh, in getting that money into the hands of the actual farmers, uh, unfortunately, if you, it doesn't, you know, you don't have to go too far back in history to see this is uh, farmers have been losing their land for a hundred years now. So um, we're we're pretty much left with mega farms at this point, and. Um, yeah, what we want is, uh, you know, something more akin to the original vision of a republic of farms. Um, and the only way that we can get something like that is, uh, you know, for for this grassroots movement to take off. Yeah, so that's
0: um, in some ways trying to find uh, a, a way to enshrine the sovereignty of a sole proprietorship or an individual while also maintaining... Um, you know fluidity in, in the markets, in in a way, especially in a localized way, so that you know there's efficiency in, in, in effort and in distribution of things. And I think that there's opportunity beyond that. I think there's opportunity in a non you know taking things out of the marketplace, and taking you know there there are ways to find solution without it being a um, commercial endeavor. You know, what if some of our needs, our individual and social needs, were met through you know Instead of having considering it about being about farming, making about gardening, what if we kind of shifted our cultural interest toward you know a general you know enjoyment of the world around us through um, manipulating it? What if, you know what I was just happened to be listening to of all people Joel Salatin talking about how if every third household had three chickens, you know our food waste. Would diminish to nearly nothing, you know, and our egg industry would collapse. And yet, those needs aren't being lost, they're still all being met outside of a marketplace by, you know, individual household uh, production rather than, you know, diversified consumption from different angles all over the place. Um, so, right, so there's, there's also some practical issues with that, of course. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if space,
2: yeah, I mean, it, not everyone has the means to take care of three chickens, and also the knowledge, because um, chickens. It turns out pretty much every animal in the world wants to eat a chicken, and they're pretty darn easy to catch. So, <laughs> uh, that, but, ta- yeah. But but it's an interesting point. Like we could tremendously reduce our needs on big agriculture if everyone did a little bit.
0: Yeah, and that might just require, rather than you know, a political revolution or a, you know, economic revolution, but a, a cultural sh- uh, change in uh, the interests that we engage in, the things that we find fun and interesting and cool to do. And i I found that for you know, how many different articles and health, you know, and in wellness industries that are coming up with all different ways to uh, monopolize on getting people outside. You know, if we can just find ways to get ourselves outside, give ourselves hobbies and habits to put us in those places, you know, and there's all different other kinds of ancillary benefits that can pop up. That might be um, a cause solution to larger issues. I wonder if you know one of the problems
2: is that we're all kind of screen addicted. Um, I uh, I recently uh, met with a client who had moved upstate from New York City. And, uh, it was really interesting interacting with their kids because, uh, the, you know, they bought this farm and they were really excited, you know, micro farm. They were, they wanted to put in a meadow and a vegetable garden and raspberries. And, and, um, so we did a, a walk through their property to talk about the prospects and the kids were like, I mean, they couldn't even make it for 10 minutes without having like serious meltdowns and they were crying. They wanted to get back in the house. And these are like, they were two to like 12. There was three of them. One, you know, one I think was maybe around six, but all of them were desperate to get back into the house and they were like, this is so boring. And I was just watching them. And it was interesting to me because, um, I'm also, I've seen kids growing up without screens. And when I see those kids out in nature, I mean, they'll just find a stick, they'll find a rock, they'll find a thing to jump off, they'll find, you know, a frog to catch. It's like, they just know how to go and have fun outdoors and um i'm i'm you know i 'm worried about this generation that where our our kids are growing up on screens and nature or the outdoors, the wild is just this this big boring blank canvas which you know there 's nothing it 's like a a piece of paper without a crayon or something it's yeah, just it's like wild absolutely boring to these kids
0: makes you imagine like what would happen if in Fifteen to twenty years, there was like some global EMP that knocked out all like electronic devices. Right. It, it's not even the that's, issue about. I think that's you know, listed on
2: the uh, that. Who is it? The there's the the scientists who have like the doomsday clock. They list all of these potential scenarios, and that's one. And of them? one of them is a global as uh, a solar flare, right. like knocking out all our technologies
0: and like yeah. just basically you know shutting down the grid. Right. Right, and so I, I wonder if if the real crisis—not just of the loss of all the institutional systems because of lack of electronic power—but the mental health crisis that would happen to the, that generation, you know, when they didn't—they all of a sudden had to utilize their imagination to not be bored. You see, I think it'd be a bit like a junkie on withdrawal.
2: It'd be really bad for a little while, and then one day they would wake up and they would go outside and play and feel
0: great. But if they had from their whole lives, they were. They had all of their attentions satisfied by a screen,
1: yeah.
0: and then that wasn't there. Yeah. I mean, it could take years for some of these kids to actually learn
2: how to operate without them. I don't know. Yeah, it depends on each one. Yeah, it depends on that. On I mean, there,
0: I think in that situation, there'll definitely be, be human beings who yeah. have are, are you know, ahead of the curve for that in a given circumstance. like. You know, kids who grew up outside will probably be able to be like, oh, whatever. Kind of like the people who, who were living in like <laughs> s- basically self-sufficient or at, you know locally s- uh, sourced. You know, most of their goods in the middle of the pandemic. Who were like, oh, there's something going on. Like they didn't mm-hmm. even really mm-hmm. see. I, mean, I
2: don't know about that. That's
0: what this <laughs> be. You know, there'd be
2: catastrophic repercussions for everyone because if you're, you know, I mean, think about it. If no. F- Gas can get pumped. It's like even those of us oh, yeah. who have our own, you know, access to food, we don't feed ourselves year round. And even to the time extent time. that we do, how many other things we're used to getting in, you know, from clothing to tools to—I mean, you name it. It's like, yeah, we're we're pretty. I think all of us are are pretty much hooked on the system. I
1: imagine that EMP scenario, you would have like a an immediately more deeply entrenched. Uh, class division based on uh, ableism because mm-hmm. you would have everyone who is highly dependent from like a purely physiological or health perspective on the of the efficiency of those systems all of a sudden being extremely vulnerable well a chaos would cause a cull, probably cause of which Cull?
0: like there would mm. be a, a, a call be, yeah yeah right like who how I mean look at how things went down in the pandemic. Like people freaked out and lost their minds and you know, hundreds of thousands of people died. I mean, from sickness, but also maybe unnecessarily. Well the thing which I'm
2: wondering is, uh it's going off on a tangent, but what would happen to the monetary system? It's pretty much I've heard that uh I believe that paper dollars are something like at this point a fraction of you know, most people's money is a number on a screen. And if that whole system went down, who's to say, <laughs> who even has any money? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, <clears throat> yeah. yeah, hopefully things wouldn't descend into complete anarchy and well, chaos. Well, they would. They absolutely would. I mean, they imagine the cascade of, of, of events that would happen if all of a sudden, you know, all screens everywhere went blank. Yeah. And, and all hums stopped. And all yeah. you know, anything that wasn't the internal, internal combustion <laughs> engine started with a, a spark inside, you know, caused by flint and steel or something, you know, or whatever. Um, that's the only motor that could run, you know. Electric what would ha- bikes. You know, for for a a, the, well no electric everything electric wouldn't wouldn't work if if was oh, a solar the solar flare or EMP situation. Right. Yeah. So, you know, if that were the case, like I think Imagine all the systems that would just stop working, and then there would be the material loss so i mean and, and it's kind of fun in, in given this conversation it's maybe really helpful to imagine such a scenario because it kind of highlights all of the places where our civilization depends on our on our own artifice you know on 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 creations that that utilize and ex- externalize nature uh, at, at our own. Um, detriment because you know we aren't prepared for such a an eventuality. Um, whereas if we align things according to natural systems and everything was causing a positive feedback loop, first of all, such an instance might not even be a problem or even be a, a potential to happen. But second of all, you know things get rendered into the system and, and get ba- would potentially find a way to balance out. Um, so but there's always unknowns. So, so
1: are you advocating? Hey. Fake flag EMP situation uh. <laughs> or, or, or widespread
2: resilience. <laughs> for me, absolutely not. It, huh? I'm not, not advocating. Absolutely not. I'm definitely
0: not advocating it. <laughs> not at all. However, it's probably going to come sooner
2: or later. Well, it's a. I, I mean, any uh, contingency plan is good to
1: have in mind. Uh, plan for the worst, hope for the best, sort of thing that seems uniquely suited to this sort of theme because you have a cataclysmic event that doesn't immediately entail widespread death directly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. It'd be a slow kind of
2: unwinding. Which is yes, what we're already engaged health in. health-compromised people. And, you know, you can imagine there's anyone who would be receiving treatment at that time, potentially people with, you know, life-saving pharmaceutical needs, yeah, there'd be a lot a lot of
1: yeah, there'd be a very like semi-predictable tiered die-offs pharmaceuticals is the first thing that comes to my mind. You know, it's like imagine people who take like HIV drugs. Yeah. 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 And then probably
2: then malnutrition would be maybe the next tier. Yeah, okay. and then how you mentioned the able body, you know, thing because you know, naturally uh, if you couldn't work for your for something um Where's your food coming from?
1: Whatever emerges from the... My first thought is that it would most resemble feudalism of any previous iteration of development. Uh, because you have sort of a, a fallback on a pre-industrial, somewhat agrarian type of organization, right? But obviously informed by the trauma of knowing what came after and all of a sudden it's gone.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would kind of almost argue that we're already seeing that existent. Like, that's already happening in places that are so externalized that they're just, I mean, totally impoverished. You know, that's the that people already experienced that malnutrition, already experienced that lack of access. Um, and now it's being um, sort of doubly, you know, compounded by the um, eventualities of climate change. And, "Quote unquote global south," and, and also even within our own country, the, the class uh, divide, and where you know, however many people are on on increasingly dwindling welfare, um, who are are the de facto peasantry of the neo feudal situation that we already are in within our global capitalist system. Um, so, just to call the wake up call, it's that slow disintegration is already happening and it only will take whatever um, shocks to the system to, you know, tear it off and make it happen even faster, you know, in a, you know, step-by-step process.
1: Going back to uh, the idea of the externalization, even just then discussing that, I'm thinking of hypothetical scenarios. It's sort of a symptom of that externalization to be able to think it's only hypothetical and not something that you could find existing in your own time under certain circumstances that can only come about that process of externalization.
0: Otherization, yeah, but keeping you know that, that disconnection and that to to not um, give credence to the real relationship that on this round world there is no away. You know, every every place is connected and is, you know, in relation to every other place and every other thing thank you for listening if you'd like to reach out with any comments or questions feel free to email us at ourcommonnaturepodcast at com or follow us on instagram at our.common.nature stay tuned for our next episode where we continue this conversation